Hello and welcome to the podcast for the May 2010 issue of The Lancet Oncology. Richard Lane here and this month I'm delighted to be joined by Emma Granger from TLO to discuss some of the May highlights. Welcome Emma. Hello Richard. Emma, let's start with an article. It's a phase two study and this is looking at the biphosphonate zoledronic acid in its use with chemotherapy, specifically here for women with early breast cancer. Before we go into the details of the study, I'm interested in the chemistry here. Tell us about zoledronic acid and what its um, mechanism is thought to have in association with chemotherapy. Well, I think oncologists will be familiar with the use of zoledronic acid to prevent bone loss in patients with breast cancer undergoing adjuvant therapy. And a lot of these bisphosphonates are also used in women with osteoporosis. Now, zoledronic acid is a third-generation drug in this class of drugs known as bisphosphonates, and it works by inhibiting osteoclast-mediated bone resorption. So the study that you mentioned that we report in this issue, it follows on from a paper that was published last year in the New England Journal of Medicine, and that paper looked at a trial, a phase 3 trial called the ABCGS trial, and the trial looked at the effect of zoledronic acid on disease-free survival. And it showed a benefit in women with breast cancer receiving adjuvant chemotherapy. And there's also been a preliminary report of the ZZOFAST trial, and that's also suggested a benefit. So the study that we report in the issue, it tries to highlight what the potential mechanisms might be behind this effect, this this benefit for disease-free survival. And it looks at the use of zoledronic acid and its effect on disseminated tumour cells, or DTCs. And these DTCs are an independent poor prognostic indicator. So for those patients who have circulating DTCs after chemotherapy, they tend to do worse. And the bone marrow is thought to be a sanctuary for these cells, and it allows them to adapt and then disseminate to other organs. So the author's theory behind the paper that we report is that zoledronic acid would target these DTCs through its effect on the bone, and also, it's, it's kind of known that treatments for breast cancer can increase the osteoclastic-mediated bone activity through the development of osteoporosis. So the idea was that zoledronic acid would counteract this osteoclast-mediated activity. Thanks, Emma. And go on and tell us about the methodology of this Phase 2 study. In the study that we report in the issue, there were 120 women, and these women had stage 2 or 3 breast cancer. And they were randomised to either zoledronic acid at four megs every three weeks or no zoledronic acid. And all of the women received neoadjuvant and adjuvant chemotherapy. The primary endpoint of the study was the number of patients that had detectable DTCs at three months. And these DTCs were also measured at baseline for a reference. And in terms of the results, Emma, there seemed to be a benefit observed here for zoledronic acid, but not statistically significant or of borderline significance. Is that right? Yes, that's absolutely right. And this could be because um, the study is quite small, so that might explain the non-significant findings. At baseline, the, the numbers of women with detectable DCCs was actually similar between the two groups. But at three months, there was a numerical difference between the two groups, and that was 17 of 56 women in the zoledronic acid group had detectable DTCs. This was versus 25 of 53 who did not receive the zoledronic acid. So there could be a number of reasons why there was only this very small difference seen. And the authors themselves speculate that perhaps there's a certain level of burden of DTCs at baseline that might be too large for the chemotherapy plus the zoledronic acid to have any effect. And they also suggest that as the methods improve, 
the threshold for detecting the cells could be lowered. So perhaps in this study the levels were too low to be detected by the current methods. Nevertheless, I guess still an important finding and it is at phase two. So what are the next steps, do you think? Yes, well the trial supports findings from two smaller pilot studies and it also supports the theory that the anti-metastatic properties of zoledronic acid that have been highlighted in the previous papers might be through its effects on decreasing the number of these DTCs. But it will need confirmation in a larger cohort, of course. But however, it does suggest that clinicians should maybe consider measuring these cells um, in trials that are using bisphosphonates to add to this evidence base. And that's with a caveat that toxicity must, of course, be balanced with um, any expected benefit you might get from the zoledronic acid. One of the main um, major toxicities that's seen is osteonecrosis of the jaw. It's a very serious side effect, and there was one reported case in the study here. And also further studies are needed to determine what the optimum administration schedule should be for the zoledronic acid. Thanks, Emma. And next, a review. And this is on a very important topic, and that is the effect of cancer treatment on the fertility of people. So we're talking people before they reach the age of puberty and obviously during reproductive age. Firstly, Emma, what proportion of people who get cancer could potentially have their fertility affected by cancer treatment? Well, the authors of the review actually indicate that there's more than 50,000 cancer diagnoses made each year in the US, and that's in those that are aged less than 35 years. So it's quite a large proportion that could be affected. Just walking through this review in turn, could you let's start off with female fertility? Give some examples of how cancer treatment can affect that. Well, chemotherapy can act as a gonadotoxin, and radiotherapy can also damage the uterus, the ovaries, and the hypothalamic axis. And of course, the effects of these um, various treatments depend on what agent is given, the dose and the shielding that's used for radiotherapy, and the scheduling of the chemotherapy and radiotherapy, and also, most importantly, on the patient's age at the time of treatment. Thanks, Emma. And also, just comment on the issues affecting male fertility. Well, for testicular cancer, for example, um, this is a cancer that often affects men in their um, early 20s and early 30s. Radiotherapy is given um, as a kind of standard treatment, and for those with metastatic disease, chemotherapy is given as well. So both of these treatments can affect fertility, of course, through effects on spermatogenesis. So for both treatments, the sperm can recover. And again, the effects depend on the timing, the agent, the dose and the age of the patient. And I think it's also worth highlighting to listeners that these so-called late effects, of which infertility is, is counted as one of these late effects, they may occur or affect a patient many years later after treatment is completed. So, such as the cardiac effects and the second cancers. And this area is of a huge interest to oncologists who are having to ensure that whilst the best treatments are given, that is, the most efficacious with the best chance of a cure, that any treatment must be assessed in light of these potential late effects. And future quality of life is also a big issue. Many of the cancers are now very curable, so a large proportion of patients are living with their cancer. And I would like to refer listeners to a really nice comment that um, we published in the January issue this year by Patricia Gans. And um, she talks about this particular area and estimates that worldwide there are 25 million cancer survivors. So I think this really highlights the vast scale of the issue. But I do think people are much more aware these days of late effects and fertility issues. So, for example, in Hodgkin's lymphoma, the gonadotoxin MOP regimen is being replaced with the less gonadotoxic ABVD regimen. Also, briefly, Emma, the authors talk about any evidence for a congenital effect. Um, yes, most of the effects of the treatments appear to be on somatic cells rather than the germline cells. 
Um, so overall, most of the studies have concluded that there doesn't appear to be more congenital effects in children of cancer survivors. There also doesn't seem to be an increase in the X-linked mutations in these children or in childhood malignancies, with the proviso or the exception that, of course, those that have inherited genetic disorders do still have an increased cancer risk. And the authors of the review note that there was an increase in congenital abnormalities um, seen in the offspring of female Wilms tumour survivors. And this was survivors that had, had flank radiation. But at this stage, the mechanism of this is unclear. And finally, Emma, what do the authors conclude from this review? Well, the multidisciplinary team of medical and surgical oncologists is required. And this should also include a reproductive endocrinologist, a perinatologist and a psychologist. And I think perhaps most importantly in certain settings, a genetics counsellor. Um, for example, in women who have BRCA mutations, they need to decide um, whether to defer prophylactic surgery, which of course has major implications for future fertility and family planning. And finally, Emma, an article again, and this is a 15-year follow-up study looking at surgical options for resectable gastric cancer. Can you tell us, describe to us these two surgical procedures that are, are being compared in this study? Well, as you say, Richard, um, this is a follow-up study. It's the 15-year data from the Dutch D1-D2 um, randomised controlled trial. And the trial compares the outcome of patients with gastric cancer who have undergone two forms of, of surgery. And that's a D1 lymphadenectomy versus a more extended D2 surgery. And I would refer listeners to figure one in their paper that nicely depicts the details of these two different forms of surgery. The trial had previously reported an initial survival benefit for those in the D1 group, but in the long-term follow-up study that we report, the findings now show that those who have undergone the more extensive surgery, that is the, the D2 group, they have a, a lower gastric cancer-related death rate. At the time that this trial was conducted, it was thought that it would be necessary to resect the spleen and the pancreatic tail, and this was to adequately remove the lymph node stations 10 and 11 in the D2 surgery. And the authors speculate that as a result, there was an increased mortality and morbidity from the D2 surgery in the early follow-up reports. This was then reflected in the survival findings being better in the early reports in the D1 group. However, the link commentator to the piece, uh, Dr. Kevin Rogan from the University of Chicago, is not sure that this fully explains the differences between the early reports and the later report. And the authors also suggest that uh, quality assurance is, is vital in this setting. Just tell us a little bit more about results then from this study, Emma. Yes, yeah, so I'd say that they're not clear-cut, but they certainly suggest that D2 should be the method of choice, and that's if surgery is done in expert hands and where there's quality assurance procedures put in place. And, of course, the implications for clinical practice is that the trial was done before the trials included chemotherapy, um, such as the UK MAGIC trial. So the findings need to be considered in the context of this modern therapy and two tables in the discussion of the article highlight nicely how this trial fits with other trial evidence to date. So interestingly, um, in the MAGIC trial, the trial that I've just previously mentioned that includes chemotherapy, the surgery was left to the discretion of the surgeon so they could choose either D1 or D2 surgery. But two-thirds actually chose the D2 surgery so this suggests that those in the field are now moving towards this type of surgery and the long-term data that we report in the issue certainly support this shift in practice, I think. Well, many thanks for that, Emma. And anything else in the May issue that you'd like to point out? Yes, we have a leading edge that looks at UK healthcare and funding. 
and this is with particular reference to the recent pre-election promise by the Conservative Party to fund drugs that are licensed but not NICE approved. Great. Well, many thanks, Emma. Very interesting issue. Those are some of the highlights from the May issue of The Lancet Oncology. We'll see you next month.